All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. How are you? Rick Rubin is on the show. He's doing things. He's got a podcast now. And uh, he's got this thing on Hulu where he's interviewing Paul McCartney as part of the documentary series McCartney 321. He's famous. He's infamous. He's mysterious. He co-founded Def Jam Records, was the former president of Columbia Records uh, in helping to popularize hip hop in the 80s. He produced for Run DMC, LL Cool J, the Beastie Boys, Public Enemy. He produced metal and hard rock artists like Slayer and Danzig, comedy records for Andrew Dice Clay. He produced Johnny Cash's late career work, both original Johnny songs and covers like Nine Inch Nails' Hurt. And he's worked with literally hundreds of other artists. Adele, Lady Gaga, Kanye, Metallica, Tom Petty, hundreds more. And I talked to him about almost none of that. Why, you ask? How are you going to do that? How are you going to cover all that? It's just too much. And that's sort of like, I mean, seriously, man. It, what, are you going to go record for record? I just did what I do, tried to get to know the guy a little bit. We had a nice chat. By the way, the uh, the shows are going well. Last Thursday at Dynasty Typewriter, I definitely kind of broke new ground. Something went down last Thursday. Something came together. The, the interesting work for me is that can I make things work twice and do I still like it if it works twice? Just improvising through these subjects and these topics and finding jokes is the most rewarding part of doing stand-up, and it doesn't happen all the time. I mean, you can have freedom of mind, you can riff all you want, but you sort of want to hit pay dirt with the riff. You want to be in the moment and all of a sudden be delivered uh, something beautiful from who knows where, the muse, the ether, the necessity of trying to get the laugh. And for me, sometimes dark moments is where it's at. But some things were coming together, themes, callbacks, ideas, uh, and it's wild. It's 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 multi-leveled and it's uh, it's exciting. And I'm I'm going to keep at it. I got one more Thursday, and then we go on the road with some of this stuff, and we'll see what happens. Primarily to work it out in front of my fans who come out to see me on the road, but also in front of normal people, people who may not think like me. That's always a good test, isn't that what you need? Doesn't that determine something? If you want to see me. Dynasty sold out, but I'll be in Denver August 5th, 6th, and 7th at the Comedy Works. I'll be at Stand Up Live August 12th in Phoenix. That's sold out, I believe. They added a show on August 13th. I'll be at Wise Guys in Salt Lake City August 19th, 20th, and 21st. I will be at Helium in St. Louis. That is if the entire state does not buckle from uh, COVID and anti-vax stupidity. That really hinges, uh, but I'm planning on being there September 16th, 16th, 17th, and uh, 18th. That's at Helium St. Louis. I know I've got a date in Bloomington coming up at the Comedy Attic. I'm not sure when that is because it's not on my website. And I'm dealing with that. I'm putting it up there. It'll be up there. And then the New York Comedy Festival in November. I feel like I'm going to add stuff in there. I feel like I'm going to add stuff in there. But what's the point of going back? I've been thinking about my past. I've been thinking about all of it. I am 
going over gigs that I had a million years ago. I can remember almost every embarrassing moment in my life. I can remember almost every moment where I've been hurt by even mundane shit. I can remember not, I don't have a, a, a clear memory of a lot of good things. I'm not sure I looked at him like that. I just thought, I think I just, I, I had fucking anxiety inducing painful things uh, interspersed with things that weren't that. So the painful things and anxiety inducing and embarrassing things are, are wired in. I can jump right back into those. And the things that were not that, they're kind of passive. They're, they don't have any, there's nothing holding them together unless they were in my mind, unless they were specifically attached to giving me some relief. I am sort of amazed that I've never framed the first maybe 10 or 15 years of my comedy career as just fucking trauma. Trauma. I mean, that's paying your dues though, right? It is on some level. And I'm not... I'm not considering myself a victim. I'm not even saying that I need help because of it. But it was fucking trauma. Learning to do what you love to do. Being you know, compulsive and, and single, like myopic in pursuing comedy and what I put myself through to get there. It's fucking traumatic. But you kind of romanticize, uh, you know, you romanticize it. You know, like I was just paying my dues, man. Paying my dues. It was a fucking nightmare. And I don't know how the fuck I did it. This aggravated, neurotic, angry, terrified Jewish kid, 22, 23 years old, driving around the fucking highways of New England to one-nighters at bowling alleys, discotheques, hotel ballrooms, pubs, restaurants, and just spewing my shit to a cold room not even properly set up for comedy. What was, is that just, or that's just the way it is, man. That's how I started. But God damn it. Right now, I look back on some of my past and how I got where I am. It's just fucking heartbreaking what I dragged my younger self through. But it's like, I'm here. I'm here now. And it's good. It all paid off, right? But for some reason lately, I've been feeling the weight of it. I've been feeling the weight of it, and I don't know what that implies. I guess I've been feeling the weight of life in general. And I've, I do understand all of a sudden. Like, I've talked about, you know, retiring or what I would do. I'm doing it. Like, I'm, you know, I've never really known the line between work and not work. Because for me, I'm always actively working somehow. It's not an on-the-clock type of thing. It's a life choice. I've chosen this life that requires self-employment, that requires creative thought, and that requires to be active creatively in all your waking hours. And when you're not fully awake, apparently that's where I take a break. And, you know, I've got a different job that's not as demanding. My shoes are not nice. I don't care about my pants. My worries are different, but my life is sort of defined by process that's where i relax that's the life i didn't choose but apparently i can visit in my waking consciousness you've probably heard me talk uh, a lot about the new aretha franklin movie respect over the past couple years well it's here folks 
and I just did uh, I just did a bunch of press for respect. We did a junket, just one after the other. This, uh, the, you know, this Zoom thing, it's really changed the way things are done or the way we know we can now do them. I imagine, I, I wonder if people are ever going to go back. Because I did like 22, maybe 25 TV spots, four to eight minute TV spots, sitting in one chair in one room with people coming and going on screen with me. It's just as exhausting, but, uh, and I don't know where a lot of them will end up. I imagine perhaps you'll see me uh, when you're putting gas in your car on that screen. It felt like a, a lot of them were, were that kind of thing. But then we did a bunch of uh, print press the same way. Just Zoom, just sitting there. Kind of amazing. Very exhausting. So Rick Rubin, outside of producing almost every record of the last 30 years, uh, all six parts of the documentary series, McCartney 321, are now streaming on Hulu. It's him and Paul. He walks Paul through stuff and gets some good stuff. I tell him about it, you know, because Paul, as I've mentioned to Rick, is like a, an old gold mine that's a tourist attraction now because they assume there's no nuggets in there, but everybody wants to have a look. Well, Rick got a few. This is me talking to Rick Rubin. Are, are you in a, a, a an underground bunker that has two twin beds in it? Yes. <laughs> Funny you ask. I knew it. I can see right there. It's, what is that? Where are you, bud? You're in New York? No, I'm just kind of moving around. I'm not oh. anywhere. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, I mean, okay, that's challenging. But uh, all right, my audio hijack's a little hot. How do we fix that? I wonder why that is. I don't have any control on my side. No, it's not you. It's not you. It was me. It was me. I'm not. Uh, I'm not good on the knobs, Rick. I. I I'm with, I'm I gotta... with you. I am technically. <laughs> that's not my thing. <laughs> so what does that mean? You just have a guy. You're like, can we uh, make it sound better? Yes, that's pretty much what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> to the left, you mean, to the left, to the left. No, stop. Back to the right. Back to the right. That's what I do. You're telling me that, like, in all these years, if, if you sat down at a mixer, you'd be lost? Completely lost. I'm a non-technical person. I don't sit yeah. where the machinery is. I sit away from the machinery where I have a good, uh, where I can hear what's going on and can yeah. voice my uh, voice my concern. I, so you say you're floating, but I heard you're like, are you like, are you living in Scandinavia? No, no. Oh, someone, I talked to somebody. You're one of these guys where like, am I wrong? Did you not like talk publicly for a decade or two? Or is it, am I making that up? I think you made that up. You didn't, you didn't like live some sort of hermit like life where you didn't, you didn't talk much. That, that's the majority of my life. I don't talk much. I don't talk much <laughs> in real life. I rarely speak. <laughs> But now you're talking. It just worked out that way. Oh, really? It wasn't the grand plan? <laughs> no. Not at <laughs> so, all. So, so the Scandinavia myth, that's a lie. Uh, I wouldn't call it a lie, but who Like, it's just, uh, it's a myth. Myth and lie are two very different things. But you're, okay, so you're not denying, you're not confirming you live in Sweden. Yeah, I cannot affirm or deny that I live in Sweden. <laughs> This is gonna be a this is gonna be a tricky interview. Rick. No, we're gonna have fun. It's relax. I'm relaxed. The beauty of it is the stakes are low. 
totally. I did. I did. Are you centered? We were told you needed to get centered. I'm okay. I'm pretty good. Okay. I'm not great. Now he's a- no, I will tell you, I was traveling yesterday. I'm in a different From time Sweden? zone. I woke up at a different time. I woke up at a different time than normal. I didn't do all my normal morning routine. So I'm thrown off. I'm on a deadline for a project. So I'm crazed about that. So I would say I am not my normal Zen self. I'm a different version. Okay. So let's like, you just, that's a lot to unpack. What project are you on a deadline for? Secret project. How's that? Oh, chill for Christ's sake. So now for the, <laughs> for what's, what's the morning routine then? Um, typically if I'm in a place where there's a beach, is there a beach in Sweden? In a place... <laughs> I'll usually do a hour to 90 minute walk on the beach in the sun, barefoot daily. I listen to, um, typically I listen to podcasts, but I might listen to music or, uh, uh, a book. I I like to listen to books when I walk. So no meditating. There's meditation, but it depends when sometimes it'll be right when I wake up right now, I'm going through a phase where I don't have a daily meditation practice, but I learned when I was 14 and it comes in and out of my life in yeah. years at a time, you know? Do you have a meditation practice? I just started like four or five months ago, I think, uh, you know, to uh, to figure out what that is because I've been told to meditate forever. And, yeah, and, then I, and then I was told sort of that people have been meditating since the beginning of people. So it had some foundation in the great mystical uh, frequencies. And then, you know, I got an app and I, I do okay with it, man. I, I don't, it's not really attached to any uh, big spiritual principle other than uh, to uh, be present and uh, move past the thoughts. Have you known, have you noticed a difference since you started doing it? I, I feel like I, I, I understand the tool of it. I understand the, the sort of like, hey man, your brain's making that up. You have control over that uh, is different than, you know, like there's a, you're about to get hit by a car. Do you know what I mean? So the stuff that I have control over, maybe I can temper that if it's hobbling me somehow. Yeah. I have a friend who um, had road rage and since he started meditating, he has less. So it it sounded good. Hearing that sounded good. I know for me, it has radically altered the course of my life. So I'm, I'm, uh, I feel blessed that I learned it at the time that I learned it without, without knowing its power. What, what compelled you? Um, I was 14 years old. 14? I was 14. My neck hurt when I was in school. It always hurt. Yeah. And I had a, the doctor who delivered me, pediatrician, was kind of a hip doctor. This was in the 70s. And um, I went to see him and I said, my neck hurts all the time. My, my mom brought me to the doctor. And he said, okay, I think you need to learn to meditate. And I remember thinking, hmm, that's interesting. No one in my family meditated. No one I knew meditated. It sounded completely yeah. foreign. And, um, and I remember thinking, Hmm, I don't think my mom's going to go for this like this. And yeah. I said to my mom, well, Dr. Pizzicano said, uh, I need to learn to meditate. And she's like, okay, if that's what the doctor said, let's do that. So then I learned TM at 14 and, um, and I probably didn't understand the effect of it on me until I stopped meditating when I went to college and then moved to California. And then I started meditating again. And when I started meditating again, I realized, whoa, this, like, I am who I am because I did that for those years. I didn't know that until the gap and the coming back to it. Well, it seems like, well, if that sort of uh, sinks, so 14 TM, so your mom, where'd you go up on the island? Long Island, Long Beach. 
Yeah. So your mom's like, you know, what? Or no, she was just sort of like, <laughs> no, you, you follow medical advice. That's what um, it's. So it's she still, did that. It still works for people today. They, they do what the doctors say. Of course, of course. But like, you know, I, I don't know what kind of person your mother was, but I, there was no kind of moment of like, that's all right. Well, it may have been like, uh, again, my, my thought was she would just not be into it. <laughs> yeah. But she wanted what was best for me. And if that's what the doctor said was best for me, she didn't know anything about it, but she was open minded enough to let that happen. Did you have open minded parents in general? In general, yes. I would say both of my parents, both of my parents were the youngest of my mom was the youngest of four my dad was the youngest of three and both of them were essentially children i was i was i'm an only child and i was the adult in the house and they were the children interesting so you feel that 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 because i guess usually when you're the last one uh the the parents have had enough already so you left to bring up yourself is that well, what you mean? i think i think everyone just ba- they were just the baby they were always yeah. the baby yeah and they just remained the baby and they were very childlike and um in a good way or no but both i would say in a good way i would say for the most part in a good way but you, you feel like that as parents because my parents were somewhat immature but I, and because of that i felt they were somewhat selfish and a bit emotionally uh incapacitated in terms of nurturing and, and making decisions yes that i would say that was exactly accurate in my case but because it was an only child and because I was their project, all of that emotion went into me in a, in a, through love, you know, like they really, uh, through love and, you know, if I say it, it goes like they just believed, right. they believed in me. Oh, so that's good. So you, you were not only the adult, but you were the, uh, you were the, the, uh, the miracle. The- absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. They, they raised me to be a king. <laughs> and it, and it worked. <laughs> What you did it. You did it. You're the king without borders. I um <laughs> we don't know where you are. But uh so when you were growing up there in, in Long Beach, did they so she took you to like a TM place where you had to get the mantra and do the business? It was in a uh person's house and I remember it vividly um because it was unlike anything I'd seen before. It was a, it was a yeah. typical house on a block, typical block in my small neighborhood, but in this house I walked in and there was no furniture. It was completely empty. And then we went into this room and there was a wooden chair that was painted red. And that was the chair that I sat in. And I can't remember exactly. I remember the chair that she was sitting in. The teacher was not red. May have just been wood. But the starkness of the environment struck me, I would say, in a positive way. And 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 I can't say that it has influenced me, but telling you the story now and remembering how I felt walking into that empty house could have had more uh, the the combination of walking into the empty house, being struck by it, and then how I felt in that empty house through this practice um, had a had yeah. a very positive, profound effect on me. Yeah, and and you rearrive there later in your life as a as a. As it seems as a music producer, you know, let's just have you with the guitar <laughs> in the chair. Yeah, if it's right, again, if that's what's right. I, I definitely like the least amount of material needed to get the job done for different reasons. But then certain projects call for something very different than that. And that's fine, too. It's like there's not a, there's right. no there's no rule. There's no right. There's no system. No, it's like depends on what the project 
say, but my yeah. taste, my taste is I like things that are pretty sparse. But do you think like the, do you like have a sense of, of ritual? Because it seems like a red chair, like there was definitely kind of some, uh, a, a magical thing going on. There it was all intentional. I don't know. I don't know. The, the girl was like kind of a young hippie girl. I, I don't know how intentional it was, honestly. But you got your, you got your mantra that you used until you went to college. I, I still use it to this day. Really? Oh, absolutely. And and when you're when you're taught it, you never speak it again. And I've never spoken it. But did you go full full in Buddhism at some point? Um, I I'm interested in Buddhism, and I would say I study Buddhism. But I study all you know all spiritual paths. I'm 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 a spiritual seeker. Did you grow up Jewish? I was born Jewish, but I didn't really grow up with much um, much religious training. No bar mitzvah. I was bar mitzvahed. That's something. That's a little bit of training. I mean, you know, you don't have to be a rabbi to be bar mitzvah. Not the way it was done in my town. I'm being honest. It was um, it was really just some memorization for sure. essentially for a party. It was no that right. All all spirituality was removed from it. Why well, else? When I talk about Judaism and my Judaism, I was I always say that we were never taught how to use God. I know you know I never was taught the nature of it or, or the morality of it, or even the spirituality of it. It was not, I was not taught to pray or anything. So it was just this kind of thing we did. It was more of a community event. Yeah. Same. Yeah. 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 And, and not even a community event because I felt like my parents had some sense of obligation to it with no understanding of it, no understanding right. or interest, but just right. a belief that this is what we're supposed to do. And yeah. Again, the, the the actual practices of it are cool if you're doing them with knowledge of what they are and per- if you're actually participating in them instead of mouthing the words, you know? Yeah, I think it was an identity thing. You know, I think that generation was sort of like, look, we're Jews. We're great. Be careful out there. That's all. <laughs> that was sort of what you needed to know. So when you were 14, 15, when did the interest in music start? Um I've been obsessed with music for as long as I can remember. There was a window. Obsessed. Obsessed. From, and it was really the Beatles that, that sparked it. It was... Um, I, everybody, right? Yeah. And, and I remember even from four years old, five years old, yeah. the, the Beatles, first the Beatles, then the Beatles and the Monkeys, then also the whole British Invasion, Dave Clark Five, all of that music really spoke to me. And I probably listened to music then for till I was about nine. Well, you know, I watched a, a bit of the Paul stuff, and it, it's interesting with Paul. I talked to Paul for this show, but you know, there's definitely this feeling that you're going down a, a gold mine that has become a sort of a tourist attraction, and no one assumes there's any gold in there anymore. Mm-hmm. And and you kind of you were able to find some gaps. I think as Paul continues to talk. He develops a deeper and more resonant opinion, certainly about John as as he ages. And I think that there was a couple of great moments that you you seem to kind of that seemed to happen. And right at the beginning, I thought when you put on uh, all my loving, there was this moment there where, like, you know, he's just listening to the different parts of the song and he just goes, oh, country. You know, like there's like just based on that one riff, you know, like he's he was so aware of what they were mashing up then, yeah. and then that that was John on guitar. Yes, and it kind of made me think about you know that that there was this sort of and you have this sort of awareness too in your choices. You know, it seems like you have been wrangling. You know, since you began doing music, that you know there are these there are these these forces. You know, metal, punk, 
country and and hip hop that you know that you are kind of those are the four horsemen for you you know <laughs> and there is something about his awareness of just these stylistic decisions that made up their sound that I, I thought was uh, self-aware, but also, you know, there's something professional, uh, something, I, I don't know. What did you make of your experience with him? Well, I learned a tremendous amount, and I felt like he actually came to realize some things because he doesn't, if you think about it, I don't know how much you go back over your old material and focus on right. it and take it apart. And I don't yeah. think he does so much. I think if he's going on tour, he might listen to what he needs to listen to to, to learn how Same. they do it for yeah. the band. But I don't think the actual making of it is anything that interesting to someone who's made it. I know I've never done it with all the stuff I've made. I never look back. So, you don't? So, no. So to look back on something from that long ago and to have that ability to kind of take it apart I think kind of blew his mind, even though he was there when he, you know, he was there when he made it, but it does take you back in a different way than just thinking about it. Yeah. And I thought that like, it was interesting, the more sophisticated observations about John's emotional state because of what he came through. Like, it just seems that, you know, John has sort of continues to evolve as a human being, uh, in, in through people's interpretations and understanding of them, I think that's it's true. Kind of with, amazing. I think that's true with everybody. You know, it's like that's that's how the world. When they works. go, you mean when they're gone? Well, both, both, both. Yeah, I think yeah. the 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 story continues, and depending on what else happens, the story changes, having nothing to do with the person at that point anymore. Just the conditions change, and as the conditions change. Our views change, and if our views change, the way we see something from the past changes. We see it. We see it everywhere. Yeah, and and I was listening to they just re-released um, that record you did with Petty, the "She's the One" soundtrack, mm -hmm. right? They re-released it on vinyl with a new cover, and I just got these new fancy speakers. And I was listening to it on vinyl, and it made me cry. What it, what, is this, hear, what speakers did you get? Sabrina X's. I love those. The uh, the Wilsons. Yeah, yeah. I have Sabrinas. They're great. They're great. But it made me cry to listen to that thing. Yeah. Like, I, it's like, what, I don't know what it, why, you know, because I listen to other people that have passed away, but there's something about Tom and there's something about how, how forward you put the voices that just was like, oh my God. And those speakers, it's just terrible to, that he's gone. Yes. I can't, I still can't believe it. Can't believe it. Yeah. I mean, like, what, how did that relationship evolve with you guys? Because that was a later thing for you, wasn't it? Not really. Um, I met him soon after I moved to California, which was 1989, something like that, 1990. What year did um, What year did Wildflowers come out? Do you know? 94. Okay. So I probably met him. I'm guessing I met him in 91, and we worked on it for yeah. a couple of years. Because the, the She's the One album was an outgrowth of the Wildflowers project. Yeah. The Wildflowers right. project started as a double album. It ended up yeah. being a single album, released as a single album. We had all these songs. Some of them made it on She's the One, and the rest of them kind of disappeared. The conversation you had about with him, like going into Wildflowers, because it was sort of a departure, and then that album sounds totally different than any other albums. Was that one of the, the, was that one of the first times you really started to? Well, I guess you did it with, with with Johnny Cash, too. But, I mean, was that one of the times where you realized that these guys that have been around for a while, or somebody like Tom, 
had never like put his voice so forward that you you know because like it's it, it's sparse but like there's there's a quality to his voice that you never would have heard before that i think i tend to like being able to really hear the singer in a personal way like to f- almost feel like they're in the room with you and m- many um historically the way vocals have been treated is with a a reverberant effect that kind of makes them larger than life and um, yeah and i i just prefer more of a almost more of a documentary approach where it's more intimate than that do you remember when you started to think that way well it started with rap records because when we were making rap records we you didn't want it to sound like uh a big production you wanted it to be a true yeah. the reason i started making records was um i was listening to hip-hop music and it was the records that were coming out were not reflective of the world of hip-hop that i was participating in if you went to a hip-hop club it didn't sound like rap records it sounded like something else sound like the records we started making because it, it, the people who made the rap records originally were people who made other kinds of records saw that rap was starting to bubble up so they used yeah. all of the the approaches that you'd use for other kinds of music and then just applied them to rap. Production values and whatnot. Production values, but also musical. Like um, the early rap records were bands playing R&B, essentially. Yeah. With a guy rapping. Whereas if you'd go out to a club, it'd be a DJ cutting up breaks. And it would be much more um, edgy and energetic. Very different than what the record sounded like. And you wanted to get that. So no, I, Just as a that. fan... That's what I wanted to hear, and no one else was making it, so I started making them. Really, just that's what I, there was no, um, I wasn't doing it with any expectation of anything to happen from it. It was more like I would like it, and I thought my friends would like it, and that was the reason to do it. What were your feelings like sound wise about punk rock? Because that's sort of where you started, right? Yeah. I mean, like that energy. So it was a different energy, but there was a rawness to it, but it was a different rawness. Not really. I mean, raw is raw. It's, it's, um, in some ways, hip hop and punk rock are, are very closely interlinked. They're both, uh, made by essentially non musicians. You know, it's, it's really bringing music back to the street level. Um, if you have something to say, you can make a good punk rock, if you punk rock record, if you have something to say, you can make a good hip hop record. Right. But, I, it seems that sometimes punk rock has some, you know, musicality and in instruments. So no, doesn't matter. It's it doesn't matter. Yes, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. I'm, I'm speaking more like energetically. It's an sure, energetic sure. thing. In some yeah. ways, the the uh, the pieces that make it up don't really matter. In any of these, in any of these things, the pieces don't matter. It's really more the energy. But yeah. if you have something to say, it changes the way you feel that energy because I. I for me, the energy starts in the music, but then the lyrics can do something out, can take it to another place. Yeah, I, 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 I'm more of a, 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 I guess it's energy, I, 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 or melody. I don't know. I don't. Lyrics are the last thing to fall into place for me. And I have other friends who the first thing they listen to is the lyrics. Like that's when yeah. they hear a song, they just, it's the lyrics. So when you were when you went, it's it's sort of interesting to me, just in talking to you the little bit that I have that. When you went to college, is that where you started to get into hip hop or was it before? Before I was in, in my high school, I started hearing hip hop when I was in high school. And that was that at the beginning of hip hop? Yeah, I was, in, I was in high school when 
Rapper's Delight, the first, you know, the first rap record came out. And at that time you were playing, were you playing music? I was playing punk rock music at that time. Do you still play guitar? Not really. I mean, no, I would say no. I, <laughs> I never really, I mean, I never really played guitar. I mean, I spent a lot of hours playing guitar then, but it was as much uh, meditation and therapeutic as anything else. It was uh, right. something to invest yourself in. But it, you didn't, you didn't enjoy playing. It was, it was fine. I mean, I li- I like music. Like I, I like music <laughs> yeah. is good if you get to play it or hear it. It's good when there's yeah. music. Well, I just I I mean I play and I don't you know not for any reason other than playing. I just was. I, 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 I am not a. Play, I don't play like that. <laughs> I don't no. play like that. But if I'm somewhere and there's no other music source and there's a guitar, I might pick it up because I want to hear music. <laughs> So when did you start thinking about recording? I'm just trying to track like this because it seems like it, that when you really got engaged in the process of making music, that it was like right around the same time that you quit meditating for a while. I don't know if that's exactly right. I think it was... Well, you said you quit meditating when you went to college. It's true, but I, I was already interested in recording music before that. My punk rock band when I was in high school, I would make cassette recordings. I was into recording yeah. a lot of things because the, the thing I started saying before, I didn't, I didn't get to was, sorry. I, no, my, my, yeah. we got, we went in a different direction, but, um, we were talking about the Beatles and the monkeys and yeah. that world of music. And then I stepped away from music for a few years and only listened to comedy albums. And I listened to George Carlin, Cheech and Chong, Bill Cosby, Bob Newhart, um, Chris Rush. I don't know if you knew, you knew Chris Rush. I know Chris Rush, yeah. They actually advertised his album in comic books. I remember seeing an ad in a comic book. And uh-huh. I already liked comedy albums. It's like, hmm, they're advertising yeah. it here. Maybe it's going to be good. You were a comic book kid too? Not so much, but yeah. enough where I noticed it. I noticed, yeah, yeah I I'm le- was less of a comic book kid. So, okay, so you go from music to comedy albums for a few years. Yes, and then during that time, I would watch Johnny Carson every night and always have my little recorder there because, like, if Rodney Dangerfield was on, and he was on a lot, I would always record Rodney Dangerfield's set. I would record anyone good who came on to be able to just <laughs> think think about the jokes and think about the language of the jokes. You know, th- that was another thing is like, because you can remember a joke. Yeah. You can remember the premise of the joke. But a lot of times it's the actual language, the, the choice of language and the uh, the rhythm of the way it's said. Yeah. To make it funny. So I, I, I started analyzing that, which then came to use when we were like writing for Beastie Boys songs. You know, like that's very much rooted in listening to, you know, Steve Martin and Monty Python. And, and well, that's interesting. But you didn't know that going in. Where Did you have some Did you have some idea for yourself that you might want to do comedy? Just loved it. Never, never imagined doing it, but I loved it. But you, so you, you recorded it essentially to see how you could, to continue getting laughs. Just to learn, like, to learn it, to understand how it works. And yeah, maybe, to, yeah, maybe to tell a joke to my parents, but never, I never thought about doing it in front of people. Right, but you just felt like deconstructing it because you were like a deep comedy nerd and you wanted to figure it out. I would say I was a deep comedy nerd, for sure. Yeah, well, me too. I I mean, certainly those people that you just mentioned were, you know, high watermarks of using language and rhythm. You know, I mean, Rodney Rodney does not get, oddly and ironically, does not get the respect he deserves (laughs) posthumously. (laughs) Do you think Rodney 
would you put Rodney as, could you make an argument that he's the greatest of all time? Definitely. Yeah. Could you? Yeah. Yeah. Because there's no, there was no better fusion of persona and material and, and just the pure heartbreaking fury at the core of it. The, you know, the, the whole package was so, so tight, so earned and so uh, oddly real. Yeah. And, and the fact that he was doing one liners, you know, he was just doing jokes. He didn't, yeah. reinv- he didn't reinvent comedy. You know, it's, nope. di- it's different, you know, talking about Richard's different. Yes, for sure. He changed no, comedy. Rodney didn't really change comedy. He just probably did it better than anybody else. But he was also, I think it was very telling when you'd watch him on, uh, on, on Carson. I, I'll watch him now. And I came to Rodney, like I always knew Rodney when I was a kid and I always liked him, but it, it's taken me, you know, years and years to come back to him and, and watch and Rickles too. Yeah. And, and there are moments where you watch both of them engaging with Johnny and the, 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 the greatest moments were that where the joke doesn't land. And they were both so highly aware of it, Rickles and Rodney, that you have this weird moment of like who they really are and, and what's at stake for them in those moments of not getting the laugh. Yeah. And it's, it's really that, those moments that ground them as being amazing comedians because you can just, you can feel their whole being just like, oh, okay. So that's how it's going to, you know. Yeah. Or some, and sometimes Johnny would laugh with them at the jokes that didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, it was just there was something uh, there was something about him about those guys who were who turned it on like that. There was no uh, uh, illusion that they were just being themselves. It was like here comes the you know what I mean. Dice was I mean you did those dice records. I mean that dice record you did became pr- fairly huge because it because it wasn't getting laughs. Yeah, yeah. I mean we did we did all we did I think we did six dice albums starting with the first yeah. one, and um yeah. and the first ones were more normal comedy albums in that he went on stage and told jokes and people laughed. Um, yeah. But the, the for, for my taste, the breakthrough was the day the laughter died when he was playing at Madison Square Garden, three nights sold out, which no one had done before. And um, and I would watch him at the comedy store in the original room late yeah. and on the right night with the right audience, he would bomb really bad. And for me, and did you ever meet Hot Tub Johnny? Do you know Hot Tub Johnny? Yeah, 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 yeah. I knew I was a doorman at the store in 86, 87. You probably, so, you might have seen me around. I mean, I was around. So, okay. So you're watching him bomb in the OR. And for me and Hot Tub Johnny, who would see him see his ascent, it was much funnier to us when he bombed than when he, than when he killed. It yeah. was just funny. Like the, the, the way he dealt with it and, how hard, how much harder he would go not to be funny, but just in his character and in what he'd say, right. like a def- again, like you talked about with, um, with Rickles, like a defense mechanism would come on when it's not working. Yeah. And he would push harder. And to hear yeah. someone like screaming and get no, nothing back, just funny. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So, so the idea was he's playing at Madison Square Garden, biggest comedian in the world. And instead yeah. of recording the garden shows and making that the record, let's find a small club and record him bombing and have that yeah. be, you know, this is the moment in time as if that's what's really, you know, as if that's what's going on with Dice now. And he, he was on board with that. Again, happily, Dice like, oh yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. 
but he has a great sense of humor. So he, I think he understood how ridiculous it was. <laughs> sure. But did he bomb on purpose? No. It, it, the key is the right audience. You get the right audience. The right audience to be the wrong audience. The right audience to be the wrong audience and to get up. Like if he would do that same act, which was not really an act, he would just just up there talking. He didn't tell jokes. It was one of the things that we said on yeah. the, on the, on the sticker for the double album was, uh, you know, uh, two albums of new material and no jokes, <laughs> you know? Well, I like, you know, like despite, you know, outside of whatever controversy he may have caused or whatever that character said that people were unhappy with or whatever anybody thinks about Andrew is that he's a funny guy and he's got a unique point of view. And to watch him do 45 minutes in the OR now even, like, but w- without him getting angry, just about talking about, you know, sandals or going to Staples. It's it's great. It's great to watch. You know, it's better if he's not angry, but, you know, sometimes that happens. Yeah. Then I, you I get actually that. like it either way. I, I think I, yeah. I find the joy in it both ways. Why why no other comedy records for you? Did you not do any? Did, was, why was he your guy? Kinison asked me to make his next album after that Dice albums I made, but he was not in a great in a great way at that time. Did he want to do music? No, he wanted to to do a comedy album, but he he ended up dying before it ever came to pass. But I also don't know if he was in a place to make his best work. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's hard to beat that first record. You know, that material was so fucking tight, man. That's the one. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. So you make a definitive first album, then what? And who's able to do it and Why? You know, that's, it's like so many art, so many artists put out their first album, music, all kinds, all kinds of artists. Yeah, sure. You make your first yeah. one, it's great. And then the, you know, sophomore slump, and then some people can recover and many don't. Well, you, you have seen it. I mean, you know, you've salvaged careers. You have been the thing that you have changed the artist's approach or, or help them re redefine themselves. I mean, I, I mean, what do you think? I mean, they're. It's like, you know, the difference between, you know, that first cult record and the record that you produce with them is is profound. And you see and I loved love. I love that record, you know, but you somehow saw that they could, you know, alter something and do something else with the sound that they were naturally making. I think the biggest liability, which seems to be something that you work against a bit, at least in in whatever record they do with you first is that I, I think the big problem is if you have that one great album and an executive or a producer says, let's make that again and again and again, then like, you know, they might make a billion dollars, but then they're kind of stuck, right? Yeah. And and it ends up, I think it ends up being short-lived. You can ride it for a certain amount of time. You know, maybe you could have two or three in a row, but by four, it's just not interesting. Well, look what happened with the Beasties. I mean, you guys did the stuff you did together. So you like reinvent. Well, you, I think you invented a lot of modern hip hop by fusing uh, punk rock sensibility in the classic sense, in the real sense with, with hip hop that you were taking in. It was your natural approach, you know, whether it was Rodney Dangerfield or just the hybrid of those guys and, and, you know, still with the remnants of the guitars. But there's the difference between license to ill. And all of the other records is huge. Yeah. Because like License to Ill is a punk rock record. It, it is to me. It is to me. Right. No, but, but that said, said, Paul's Boutique, which came out after it, is one of the greatest hip hop albums ever made. It's just very different. Yeah. It's a, it, it's an amazing record. I think that, 
actually ended up being good for the Beastie Boys because they, they continued to evolve. Same with the Beatles. If you listen to the Beatles records, they're, they're different. There may be two that are similar, but by the third one, it's really different. And they made all yeah. those albums, 13 albums in seven years. It's amazing. It's harder to do when you're a comic because, you know, once you get your point of view and your tone, that's sort of what the, you know, you're, you're, you, the jokes are different. You're writing a new act every time, but you know, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily would want to necessarily hear, you know, Don Rickles, you know, you know, fabricating a voice or not doing what he does. Yeah. Has anyone has, has, have any comedians changed their character after being successful and have, and had it work? Has that happened? After being successful? Yeah. Well, I think that like, I'm trying to remember, it seems to me that some comics have, have shifted a bit. But that was usually out of desperation. You know, they drop a name or add a hat, <laughs> something. But uh, I don't know. Can you think of any? I can't. I'm thinking about it. I can't think of any. Yeah, I think comedy is a, a little bit different. But I mean, how do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, what, where did you, these relationships that you have with certain acts, you know, that where you do several records with them, like, you know, how does, how does like Slayer and Danzig, where, is that part of your childhood? How do you mean? Is it part of my childhood? I mean, were you a metal fan? Absolutely, I love metal. I would, I would say, actually, hard rock more than metal. Like yeah. hard rock would be Black Sabbath. Iron Maiden is more metal, and that was less my taste. Black Sabbath yes. is more. AC/DC. It's more heavy rock. ACDC. That's my taste. ACDC. Yes. Yeah. Aerosmith. Yes. The first hard blues based rock. That first Aerosmith record, man. See, like that. There's a band that, like, I, I, they never got back to that, dude. No, they never, they never got back to that first one. They maybe still could. That's, I, I think so. I mean, what do you think of that Stones Blues record? I haven't heard it. Is it good? Oh my god! I mean, are you, are you a Stones guy? I am. I am now. I am now. I grew into being a Stones. I was so much of a Beatles guy that I couldn't be a Stones guy. But now that I've, over time, my understanding of music continues to develop. And I've become yeah. much more of a Stones guy. You got to listen to that Blue and Lonesome. Okay. But that's so funny because even when I talk to Paul, you know, I'm so fucked up in my head. Like, I get this opportunity to talk to Paul. It was in a live event, which is not optimum, but it, I, I would do it because I get to talk to Paul. But there was still part of me that's sort of like, well, I'm kind of a John guy. Yeah, like, I literally... Th- <laughs> I wonder how he would have reacted. There was a great moment in that interview, though, where I said... Uh, it was sort of a trick question because I talked to a lot of some of these older rock guys and they really kind of have to on some level believe it. But they, a lot of them think they're doing their best work now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not. So, so they might be for them. That's the other thing. You're asking them their opinion. and Sure. Well, that's what I said that to Paul. I said, you know, a lot of guys your age think they're doing their best work now. Do you feel that way? And he just, without missing a beat, he goes, I was in the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty high bar I have, I have a funny story that Tom Petty told me that he yeah. was they were working on the Traveling Wilburys record and yeah. it, it was him Bob Dylan and George Harrison sitting together working on a song and yeah. George Harrison got up to go to the bathroom or to step out of the room and get a drink and um, after he walked out Bob Dylan leaned over to, to Tom conspiratorially seriously not as a joke and said, yeah. you know, he was in the Beatles. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Bob, like, how come, like, did you, you, you never wanted to record with Bob? I would love to record with Bob. 
I don't think Bob would want to record with me. <laughs> no. I don't know. It's up to him. I know, I know. But like, do you have people like the people ask me if I want to interview certain people? Do you have people where you're like, I'd be yeah. I'd be great. You don't think about it. Mm-mm. It just sort of comes your yeah, way. If it's meant to be, it's gonna happen and let the universe figure it out. The the Johnny Cash records when they started because it seemed to change. I, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I'm assuming that those records had a profound change, a, a profound effect on both of you in, in how you uh, approached life and saw what you did in the world. I don't really know how to answer that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I mean, meeting Cash and, and then deciding to do those records and having the opportunity to to not only introduce him to music that he might not have seen before, but also give him the this sort of opportunity to to play songs that he had, you know, amassed later in life that he had not laid down. I just don't I can't imagine what what the feeling was once you did that first record and realized that this guy had so much more to offer. I mean, that was on you. That wasn't the perception at the time in general. And I remember when I met with him about recording with him, he couldn't understand why I wanted to record with him. Why? Because he, he, in his mind, he was washed up. You know, I saw him, he was playing in a little dinner theater in, in Orange County for, I don't know, maybe 150 people sitting, people were sitting down eating dinner while he played. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and he'd been dropped from two labels. He had, probably hadn't had a hit in 20 years and, and he was largely forgotten. And at the time when I wanted to sign him, people thought I was crazy. Like, why would you do that? Why did you do that? Well, I didn't really do it for the, for the, um, I didn't do it for the reasons that now looking back, the reasons that make sense. It was more sense of most of the artists I'd worked with at that time were young, like first time artists. Yeah. And, um, and I'd done, a, you know, a good amount of recording already by this time. And I felt like, wouldn't it be interesting to work with a, a grown-up artist instead of kid artists. Like I, I understand what the energy is like in the room when it's kids. And yeah. I just thought about, okay, who would be, who's like a, uh, who I would view as a legendary artist who isn't doing their best work. And the first person I thought of was Johnny Cash. And I thought, so it was in a way, it was more like a conceptual idea of what's a great, what's a great new album from a grown-up artist. It didn't, so what I'm saying is the idea didn't start with Johnny Cash. It started more with just this idea of a legend making something to see if the same principles that I use with young artists would work with an old artist almost. It was like a test case, you could say. Which principles are those? Um, it, at that, I'm starting to understand them now. At that time, it was more intuitive, but I've, I've come to realize over the last few years I've been analyzing the decisions on a daily basis in the studio and it'll start with either an intuition or something that I've learned from doing it in the past. Yeah. And then I try to, when I get home after, like in the, when I'm in the session, I'm just in the moment dealing with it. Um, and almost every session, something happens that has never happened before. Almost always the way we solve a problem, the way something comes up and the way we solve it is something that we've never done before or I've never done before. And it's an, and it's an exciting feeling when that happens. Like, like, uh, and that could be, uh, you know, a problem relating to, uh, how something is, is played or mixed or vocalized, or it could be anything. It could be anything. I'll give you an example from pretty recently. I was okay. in the artist with a studio who was 
writing words for a song. Who's this? Just say a name. The artist? Yeah. I, I'd rather not say. I don't I don't like to say artist names. I feel like okay. in some ways the work's almost like uh it's like therapy. I did. Sure. I just I just picturing it. It's just for my own visual. Go ahead. Yeah, I'd rather you didn't for the same reason also, I'd rather okay. not picture the person for the story. Okay, good. That that's the thing is like if you if you if you picture it, if you're imagining who I'm talking about, it yeah. changes the story to be about them. And I'm telling you the story is about the principal and it's not about that. Got it. It just happened yeah. to be that person when, when this happened. Okay. 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 So the person was writing lyrics and I thought the lyrics could be better. And we looked at the existing lyrics and we started by looking at what was working and what was not working and why. And then I realized when the person told me the emotion behind the story, that the emotion behind the story was much stronger than the lyrics in the song. So what I suggested as a homework assignment was to go home that night and not try to write the words, but to write the, write the emotion, not as a song, just write pages, write an essay about how you feel about this, the, the situation, all of the emotions, the observations, everything, write it all out. And then look at that. Uh, you know, let's say it's eight yeah. pages of material and look yeah. through those eight pages and just kind of underline where the most uh, interesting or charged material is. And then think about how to get those things into the song. Because if you're starting with a song structure and you're trying to make something that rhymes and fits, you're, you're not starting with the story. You're starting with, you're, you're trying to, you're doing a puzzle. Right. But the content is secondary in the puzzle. The puzzle is getting the puzzle right. It's not right. the content. So it was an exercise to really draw all of the content out of out of herself first and then highlight all the charged stuff and then figure out how the, just because if if you're again if you're starting with the rhyme scheme you might luck into getting one of those but you're not going to get a lot of them. Because you're not thinking right. about the big picture. You're just trying to fit in these little gaps. So right. that's an example of now that's I've never I've been making records for 35 years. I never thought about that before. But in retrospect, I realized that's a really good tool for an artist. I, I have a feeling that I'll recommend that again someday. Did she do it? Yeah, it's not done yet, but that's it's happening. So that and that's a, that was a new thing to you. The idea of that to me, it was. Usually we're just working on the words. Yeah, because plenty of people get away with puzzles. They finished a puzzle. Every most artists yeah. write the words based on the puzzle. Well, I guess that's what makes the 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 sort of rare exception so outstanding, you know, especially in country music too. Yeah, I mean, you know, because where stories are like really defined. I mean, some things in rock music get pretty cryptic, but I mean, in in country music and certainly in hip hop, you're like this is the story. Yeah. But if you, know, you if you were if you were working on a bit of business uh-huh. and you're looking for the punchline, you have the the setup and the concept, and you're only focused on the punchline, and you're just looking for the punchline, hmm. might you miss a five minute story that's better than the punchline? Look, yeah, I mean, you're, you're that you're the type of comedy I do is is generally going to come from the story first. So it's a matter of rendering. You know, I, I, I wish I was more punchline driven. 
to be honest. Audience too, I bet. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. But I, but it sounds to me, it sounds like you would appreciate it on a, on a good night if I just floundered around up there desperately trying to find my way out of the box. I Nothing built. better. Nothing. It's, it's fascinating. <laughs> but that's how I write, you know, and I don't know if musicians work that way. It's like I just, you know, after a year in lockdown, you know, and, and going through some personal tragedy, I got to do, I don't, I, I'm not sitting around writing jokes. You know, I got to take a, a, a month long residency at a small theater and improvise for an hour, an hour and a half to figure out what the fuck I'm thinking about yeah. and seeing how that kind of renders down, you know, seeing, you know, and my, the way I do it is like, I know I'm funny. So if I put myself in that position, it will be delivered to me in the moment. You know, if I'm worth my salt, like if I, you know, I'm a funny guy, so I'm going to try to avoid that total discomfort innately. And that's when the punchlines are delivered. I don't know where they come from. I didn't write them down. They come in that moment of fucking like need for deliverance. Does it take an audience to make that happen? Can you do it at a, could you do it at dinner with one person? Yes. Yeah. Sometimes I do it on the mic alone. It's a, it's a, it's about thinking you out. You can do it alone yeah, without an audience. Well, if I'm, well, I'm talking on a mic, but there's no one sitting in front of me, you know, like if I'm doing the intro to the podcast. You're hearing yourself? Yes, yes, yes. Is it, you think it has to do with that? You think if you weren't wearing headphones, no. it would still do it? It's the mic itself. No, I, I think that for it to really, like, usually if I do it, like the stream of consciousness when I'm just talking, I can surprise myself. But you know, when there's a connection in place, whether it be one person or a crowd of people, then that relationship's playing into the choices you're making, right? There's a line to be to be written there that doesn't exist if I'm just alone with my headphones on. Yeah. So so you you know you're calibrating your sort of you know kind of emotional risk. You, you know. Do you when feel you're, like depending on if the audience was different, would the would the material evolve in a different way? Yeah, I think so. Like, and sometimes, like you know, what you're saying with dice. I mean, if if you're at odds with them or you've decided they're contentious or detached, you're going to chase it down in a different way, and you might go down a darker road and be like, nah, I don't know if that's going to work with a room full of normal fucking people, but those <laughs> those people had it coming. <laughs> it's really funny. I, I think when I was a kid, probably. It was Rodney was big, but also Steve Martin. Like Steve Martin blew my mind um, because of the surreal nature of the comedy. Um, did you ever yeah. listen, did you ever uh, read Born Standing Up? I didn't read it, but I remember seeing him when I was a kid, and I, I listened to that first record. Yeah, it was not it was not essentially my jam because I tend to I tend to sort of be emotionally uh, drawn to like you know kind of raw, uh, you know, either Jewish guys or black dudes, you know, who are, who are really kind of like, he was a little too goofy for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I do like goofballs, but I still like it to be, I don't like it to be so heady, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I liked that it was as conceptual as it was. And even as a kid, it just struck me as really, really funny, really funny. And, and in the, in the book, he explains we had this breakthrough. It's a great book. I, I, I highly recommend the book. Um, yeah. And the audio is great because it's him reading the book. I read the book first and then I listened to the audio. And he talks about how unsuccessful he was for how long he was, which was a really long time. And he kind of made a deal with himself that, you know, in 12 years when he turns, uh, I can't remember the age. Maybe it was when he, if he didn't make it by the time he was 30, he was going to quit. And then he gets to 30 
and he didn't make it and he doesn't quit, but, but he already, like he bypass, like every, uh, reasonable expectation was not met along the way. Right. Um, and then he had this breakthrough idea, which was, he talked about how he would see these comedians and he talked about a guy named Jackie Leonard and Jackie Leonard would tell a joke and yeah. he would like slap his belly as he said, the, said the punchline. And yeah. he realized that the whole joke was in the rhythm of, cause, cause he said eventually Jackie Leonard could then do the setup, slap his belly and say anything could say nonsense. And everybody would yeah. laugh because it was almost sure. like a reaction to the rhythm that made people laugh. Yeah, that's a timing thing. Yeah, so he saw this natural, and he said every comedian had a version of this build up and then release and how it was timed. And the punchline was the timing of where the release happened. And he thought about what would it be like if the punchline never came? Like if the, if, if the tension just kept building and the joke never came, he, he, he thought to himself, at some point, people have to release that energy and they'll just start laughing when they want to. It won't be on cue and it won't be all together, but they're going to have to release the energy at some point. And that's sort of the, it seems like that's the basis of the guy in the white suit and the white hair and the way he did his act, it was less rooted in this sort of end of the bit. Like the, the, the bits often are, yeah, dis- they end in a disappointing way, but the premises are so weird that you're kind of invested yeah. in going on the ride. And I like the modern thought involved. And even as a kid, I didn't know that there was modern thought involved, but somehow yeah. on a deeper level, it just resonated with me. Sure. I mean, and you're hoping that the release will not be get off. Yeah. 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 And also that there was this, a tremendous amount of showmanship in how he, you know, the white suit, you know, the 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 balloons, the nose, the banjo. I mean, it was a, a spectacle. So it wasn't just a rhythm. I mean, this guy was, you know, he was moving around and, you know, and he was dancing and he was doing, you know, it was it was all... Uh, you know, before I, I finish uh, my thought here, I want to, you'll enjoy this. Because, and I've told this story before because I, I remember asking Kennison where he got, you know, his sort of hook, you know, because he was a builder, you know, like the build, what you're talking about, the build towards release. Sam's was unique in that it was sort of a preacher's momentum. But I say, where did you get the idea for that, the way you do that? Gene Wilder. Really? Yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that in a million years, but that's great. Isn't it amazing when you when you hear those stories of where something came from and it yeah. seems completely foreign, but once you see it, you can never unsee it. You know, once you know <laughs> that Mick Jagger was definitely impressed with the way that Tina Turner moved, yeah. you realize yeah. that's where that is, that's where it came from. You know, if you've yeah. if you've ever seen the Tammy show, he must not yet have seen Tina. Right. Do you have you have you had experiences with that in music where people tell you that stuff or you've seen it happen all the time, yeah. all the time, all the time. We we'll use think- it to our advantage. Like we'll we'll often find a way in by using another artist as a reference. Where you you never know it when it's happening, but it's a it's a it'll be a a seed idea to get into something that you wouldn't get into otherwise. So I'll give you an example. If an artist is having a, a hard time 
writing new material for themselves. Yeah. And a lot of it is, you know, I, I don't know what exactly what I want to say, exactly what's right for me. I wrote this one song. I think it's good, but I don't know if it's right for my voice. There's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of ifs in the way. I might suggest, um, think of your favorite artist and write a song for that artist to sing. Like the, the song that you wish you could hear them sing, write it for them to sing. And it's a, it's a, it's fun for an artist to get to do that. It gets them out of their head and it gets them thinking about music they like. And any ways that we can remove the boundaries between us and making things. And there's a million of them that, and, and they're all like self-imposed, all these like, guards that we have up walls that we have up. We don't want to go there. We don't want it to be like that. We don't want it to, we don't want to do that to remove as many of those as possible and just see what comes, um, is, is really helpful. And, and we've done it with, with writing songs for other people. Sometimes the song that comes is really good. And and I'll tell you where the idea came from. Um, I didn't make it up. I mean, I made it up as an exercise, but the story came from the Bee Gees who wrote the song, um, to love somebody, to love somebody yeah. the way I love you. They wrote that for Otis Redding. And then Otis Redding died. So they ended up singing it themselves. They had no plans on singing it. They only wrote it yeah. for him. And it's one of their quintessential songs. It may be one of their biggest early hits. And they didn't write it as a Bee Gees song. So that's where that exercise comes from. So this is this process that you have with artists. It's sort of like a... Uh, an actor generating backstory for a character. Yes. But this is like, this is the, the, the thing that you like about the process. You know, you're not a tech guy. You're not a board guy. You're not a knob guy, but you're like sort of a vibe guy and an energy guy. And you want to get in there and work with these people in a way that pushes them a little bit. Yeah. And to make something to make the best, I, I always try to, I, my goal is always to make the best thing they've ever made in their lives. That's the goal. It's like, it's a lot of pressure. It's, uh, it's high. I don't know if it's pressure. It's like high expectation. It's like, um, mm. the bar's high. Like, I want the bar to be high. We're not just, we're not phoning it in. You know, we're making, but, we're making something. And I remember when I said, I think it was John Cash when I said to him, it's like, I, you know, we're going to, our goal is to make the best album you've ever made. And I remember the look on his face, like, you're insane. It's like, you know, I, <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's an insane statement. And, and, and you did, you made, you I mean, know. that's not for me to say, but it's at least we made stuff that would be in the conversation. My, my producer thinks, thinks the man comes around is the best Johnny song ever. Yeah. That may be, I think that was the very last song he ever wrote. The very last yeah. song. And he worked on that one for years and years and years. And when he came to the studio to record it, he, he had a book of lyrics for that, of that song, of different wow. verses, of different, different iterations. He'd worked on it for a really long time. And we had already been working together for, you know, 10 years at that point. And I'd never heard of it before. That was the death song. He also had one called the, uh, the 309. That was one of the two last songs were, mm. The man comes around and the 309, which is like, uh, it's coming around like the 309 and the 309 coming is, you know, mm -hmm. the end of the line. <laughs> when the 309 comes, it's over. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's interesting how that imagery, you know, 
was that a train i imagine right yeah i remember we finished i think it was the fourth album we did like six official albums but then you know box sets of additional material because we, we were always over record for everything um but on for the six official albums we finished the fourth album and he had been sick and um and i think june had already passed and we finished the last song the last day and he came over and he got very serious and he shook my hand and he said, you know, thank you so much for, thank you so much for doing this with me. And I really appreciate it. And that was great. And I said, okay, well, you know, tomorrow we start the next one. And I remember he looked at me like, like, what do you mean? It's like, let's go. It's like, if we, if this one's done, we got to start the next one. Yeah. And, and he, and his demeanor kind of changed. Like, okay, I'll start, like, I'll start working on it. Like it, because it, it always felt like the only reason for him to be alive was to make these records. Because before that, he, he was, the only reason to be alive was to be an artist. And most of that had to do with going on the road. And then when he got right. too ill to be able to go on the road, all that was left yeah. were the recordings. So we yeah. had set up recording sessions every single day, every day, always. And if he was able to participate, you know, if he was able to sing, he would sing. If he wasn't feeling well, he wouldn't participate. But the fact that there was always a session tomorrow was really good psychologically for him because it was a reason to get out of bed. You know, it was. Yeah. And you had this sort of revolving door almost of all these amazing musicians coming in. Yeah. Every day, every day there would be a new session and he loved it. He was great. So let me ask you how you got from, because it seemed like early on, you know, when talking about Steve Martin too, that early on. In, in certainly in hip hop and whatever uh, the the sort of hybrid of punk and, and moving forward that and you've said it before that the, the the idea of spectacle and the idea of putting on a show I, that I sort of you know kind of evolved out of your love of wrestling was sort of like part of the hype that defined you know who who you were and also hip hop to a degree. When did now was there ever a time? I mean, we were talking a lot about energy and passion, but was there a time where you really thought that this is the way I'm going to make money? Never. There was no, there was no point in time. Yeah. I still can't believe that I, that I don't have to have a job to support my music habit. Cause that's what I always thought. Like from the beginning, I started making music as a hobby while I was going to go to law school and get a degree and have a job. And I, yeah. and hopefully I would have a job tangentially involved in the music industry, but whatever money I made would go towards making music. Cause that's what I liked. I didn't know anyone who did that as a, as a career. It wasn't a realistic career path. Where does wrestling, where do you stand with wrestling now? Absolutely love it. I watch more than eight hours every week. <laughs> more than eight hours. Yeah. Well, there's every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a tremendous amount of pro wrestling on TV, and and you just you just love it. I absolutely love it. It's a really beautiful, fine art form. It's it's storytelling taken to the next level. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's 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 American opera. I was I was on a television show for three seasons about female wrestlers. Uh, the Glow Show. Yeah. How was it? How was the experience? It's great. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't a wrestling guy and I'm not a wrestling guy in the show either. I'm a film director who gets stuck with the job of making a wrestling show. Yeah. So I had to educate myself. So I don't come at it. When did you start loving wrestling? Around the same time I started loving music, like re- re- very young. And there's also all that rawness. It's a very punk rock in a way. 
Absolutely. It's, it's definitely DIY crazy. The stories they tell are, uh, reckless in a way that you don't get to see in the mainstream. There's, um, there'd be violence towards people in a completely inappropriate way on a regular basis. But it makes sense because you're setting up bad guys and good guys. So the bad guy has to do something really despicable to be a bad guy. So they do some things that are really despicable. But because it's like this hyper real, not real, it's like you're not going to the movies. They're not really characters. They are, but they aren't. It's like that line. It's like where, what's real, what's not. And the fact that they work reality into it. Like if a guy gets hurt, that becomes part of the storyline. But then sometimes yeah. they say a guy gets hurt and he didn't get hurt. It's it's only the storyline. Or sometimes yeah. like one of the characters gets divorced and then he like yeah. he might be getting divorced, but maybe it's just story and you never know. It's it's this like parallel reality always going on and it never ends and it goes on forever. It's amazing. So it's a it's a perfect reflection of life in a controlled way. For you, I would say it's it's closer. It's more honest. It's the most honest form of information in our society. Like pro, pro wrestling is the most accurate representation of life, dude. Like right now, you've got heels in in government. D- Donald Trump was the biggest heel and the best heel that ever lived. Yes, and by the way, in the WWE Hall of Fame, he's in the WWE Hall of Fame. Makes sense. It's like you, the best heel president has to be in the Hall of Fame. But but do you find it upsetting in any way that it's bleeding into our politics? No, because it always did. It's you. Now we see it. I feel like the beauty of where we are now is it's always been wrestling. It's always been wrestling. Just now we know it. (laughs) It's like the curtain's been drawn back, and we see. Oh, it's pro wrestling. All this time we thought it was real. Was there ever a dream uh, of yours to be like Vince McMahon? Like, because I mean, you did some, you funded some, some promotions. Not like Vince McMahon, but I did invest in a wrestling company. Also, like all the things that I that I make, I make out of a desire as a fan of not being served. And there was this window in time in pro wrestling where, so when I was a kid, wrestling was great, and then there was a second league called the NWA in the South, and that was great. And they, and both leagues were kind of going along great for a long time. And then the rock wrestling connection happened. Do you know about this? Uh, yeah. Uh, Cindy Lauper. When Cindy Lauper got involved and it became more of a, it changed. It changed for a minute. And in the success of it changing, it got very popular in that change more than it had ever been. It went from like cable TV to network TV during that time because it got so popular the new audience was mostly kids. Whereas before wrestling was, it was kids, but it was everybody. And it was sort of adult entertainment that kids loved. Right. Like like horror movies were originally made for adults, but kids loved them. Um, And it's like that. It's like genre, you know, it's like genre, the exploitation movies, all of that kind of stuff, the harder stuff. Um, it's made for adults, but kids always love it because it's radical. You know, it's, it's, sure. it's goes past the bat. It, it breaks the rules. It's taboo. And, yeah. um, and then wrestling in this moment of the rock wrestling connection, a lot of kids started watching and then they changed the nature of the stories and the characters to be more like kids superheroes. And it became much more of a kids show, much less 
you know, guys hitting each other with chairs and bleeding all over the place because it was for right. kids. Yeah. And when that happened, the NWA, the Southern League, was still hard. But then as WWE got more uh, kid-friendly, NWA, which always basically imitated whatever Vince did, then they followed suit. And then everybody was doing wrestling for kids. So I'm a, a hardcore wrestling fan for, you know, the craziness of it. And now it kind of got dumbed down to be for kids. Yeah. So I supported a new league starting really just for the purpose of doing kind of old time, hardcore um, blood and guts wrestling, you know, life and death and, you know, offensive wrestling, yeah. the, the good yeah. kind, the real kind. It's like dirty jokes. You know, I like dirty jokes. If, yeah. if, if all jokes became clean, I might want to help somebody do dirty jokes, you know, like support someone doing dirty jokes just because they have to stay. We need dirty jokes. Yeah. They're, they're still around. Good. I hope so. Well, so how, how in, in, in terms of, of your feelings about wrestling and your feelings about music, what, what about wrestling has contributed to how you perceive the world that you work in? I mean, how do you, what is important about music? I, I just heard what you told me is important about wrestling and it was very deep and very passionate and, and sort of thought out, you know, and I understand all those reasons, you know, it's a way of feeling alive and it's, uh, it's not, it's a way of engaging in something that takes a lot of risks that you can't really take in life, but also, you know, there's story and there's characters and there's people you follow and you don't know what's real and what isn't. I mean, that's, that's all consuming. That's an amazing world. Yeah. So and the feeling of, you can't believe what you're seeing. Like you can't believe, like sometimes you cannot <laughs> believe what happens. You cannot <laughs> believe what happens. When it's good, love it. <laughs> when it's good, you can't yeah. believe it. You love it so much. I do. And and I those same emotions I'm interested yeah. in in music. You know, I'm interested uh -huh. in when you hear something, if it can provoke an emotion, if it can make you cry, great. If it can make you, if you can, if you, if it can make someone say, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. Yeah. That's pretty good. It's like, we, it's like <laughs> the did. worst, yes. the worst. Okay. I'll take it. You know, not interested in it being mediocre, middle of the road. So it's not really, those are about, that's about energy and about feelings and not about the, the spectacle of it. But, but that's what you sort of, you get from wrestling is this ability to take it to the edge. Yeah. It's an, yeah. it's an energetic feeling of you can't believe what you're, you know, nothing more exciting to me than listening to a piece of music and feeling like, well, I've never heard anything like this before or it, or it making me laugh, not because it's funny, but because it's gone so far. Yeah. You know, after all the music I've heard over the course of my life, someone can still put on something and I listen to it and it makes me laugh that's got power. Now, in 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 the nine thousand records that you've been involved with, yeah, are there disappointments? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it depends what and, you mean by disappointments. Though, it's like, well, I, I'm a, because my job is a collaborator. I'm not the artist. I'm a I'm a collaborator. My job is to help the artist be the best they could be. Yeah. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the the artist makes the last call. So sometimes. I have a vision for it. I don't usually have a vision when we go into it, but a vision develops yeah. as we're working on it. And yeah. sometimes at the end of it, the artist's vision is different than mine and their vision is what wins. I'll state mine, you know, I'll, I'll 
explain how I see it. Sometimes they want to do it the way I want to do it. Like, like with the day the laughter died, guys like, let's do that. That sounds great. He could have just as easily say, you crazy. I'm playing Madison Square Garden. That's the album. Just as easy. May have been more reasonable to say that, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I, my tendency is to push artists to be the most, um, pure version of themselves. And I tend to like kind of radical artists. So the pure version of themselves is usually pretty edgy. It's not always the case. It's not the case with every artist I work with, but the ones that I tend towards are pretty edgy. And what about the ones that tend towards you? How do you mean? Well, I mean, it seems like some people like, you know, in, in, are, are either get sort of recommended or referred, you know, fairly large acts, sort of like, I need to work with Rick because I'm hitting a wall. Yeah. Well, then I, I listen to what they're doing. I'll usually listen to what they're doing, listen to their best work from the past and have a conversation with them. And based on the conversation, I usually get a sense of some path forward, not what it's going to be, but some path forward, which could be rooted in something for the past that's happened. Like I remember with Metallica, when, when we got together, they, they had just made that movie, which sort of, sort of showed how internally not working Metallica was at that time. Yeah. Uh, do you ever see that movie? Some, I think it's called yeah. some kind of monster. So I think they yeah. worked pretty soon after that. Yeah. And, um, and I listened back to all the Metallica records and my favorite Metallica record was called Master of Puppets, which was not their yeah. biggest record. It was before their biggest right. record. That's another thing. Many artists will go back. Like if they're going to go back, they go back to what's popular. It's like, I usually go back to what's good. And sometimes what's good happened before what, what pop, what's popular. So you went back to that, went back to that and said, okay. And I said, for me, this is your best album. If we were going to do a sequel to that album, like, what would that sound like? Like if you, if your career, let's say you just finished that album and that came out yeah. and you wanted to continue that in that direction, what might that sound like? That's one of the questions. Another question would be, I remember saying, let's say Metallica didn't exist and you were just the, you four guys were a band. There was no such thing as Metallica. Nobody ever heard of you. There's a battle of the bands coming up. And you need to write material to win the battle of the bands. It doesn't matter what it is. It's a wrestling script. Yes. It's like, what is, <laughs> what, what is the music you play to win the battle of the bands? It's just a different mindset yeah. to write from. And because when, when you come in and play me something, it's like, do you really believe that's going to win the battle of the bands? And yeah. yes, they showed up with, we're going to win the battle yeah. of the bands. Check this. A, you know? Yeah. And it was, it, did you love the record? I think it's great. Now, when, when you've had problems with artists or they've had problems with you, how, how do you frame that in your head? Just sort of didn't work out or? It, de it depends. It depends on the, you know, it's, everything yeah. is case by case. For the most, yeah. honestly, for the most part, it usually works out. For the, for the volume of things I've recorded, there's yeah. a very short list of things I can think of that either didn't work out or never got finished or I, I, right. I tend not to quit. And we find yeah. a way. We find a way. Well, great, man. And so you, you're busy. You're working on a record. I think I'm working on either four or five albums right now. And do you show up for all of them in full capacity? Yeah. 
Yeah. They're all, they're, uh, yeah. they're, they're like all at different stages. It's, it's, um, we finished the basic tracks for one album and then there was vocal work to do, which ended up taking months and we worked on that together. Like it, it just goes in, in cycles. Pieces. Right. Right. Yeah. So when you say you're doing five records, it doesn't mean like tomorrow I've got to work on all five. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, it's like there are projects that start and then they're like at different stages of one might be just in the writing stage. One might be about to be mixed and we're doing the final details. Just all right. different. All different. You, and you don't have the Houdini house anymore, huh? Uh, I still own the Houdini house. You do? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a cool place. We recorded uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic there. That was the first thing we recorded there. We recorded... Um, System of a Down in that house. Yeah. Do you think that house is magic or it just happens to be Houdini's old house? Well, there's different stories. Like Houdini never lived in the house. He did live on the land. And actually the house that that was his house was diagonally yeah. across, but it burnt down. But he never lived in that one either. But he did live huh. on the land where this house is, but he didn't live in the house. What, in a box that he couldn't get out of? There <laughs> Where did he live? <laughs> You're just saying on the land. Was it a tent? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I know he didn't live in yeah. the, the, it was not, I just know the, the histories, yeah. the way, that, the way it was told to me was yeah. while they were working on his house, he was living on yeah. the land on this house. It wasn't in that house. Maybe it was in one yeah. of the smaller houses. So, uh, in closing, enjoy Sweden. And <laughs> it's, it's nice to see you come by the comedy store some night and we'll hang out. Do you, do you spend time there still? Yeah, I'm there I, right when the pandemic was uh, over. Like, given even after I spent a year going, like, maybe I don't need to do stand up anymore. Maybe I'm all better. Uh, as soon as it fucking opened, I'm there every night. I'm going tonight. Yeah, Are you really? I'm you're there, there every night? Pretty much. And do you get up every night? Yeah. Do you go to get up sense. or do you go just to to be in no, the I sauna? I go to work. I'm, I'm working out, buddy. I'm working out. I got to, you know, I'm going to do. I'm doing this residency and then I'm going to go do some clubs in August and I'm going to do the New York Comedy Festival in November. And if I feel like that, the hour I have built is worthy, I'll take it on the road a bit. How much How much does the hour change from night to night I, once it's developed? Well, well right now, I, I, I leave a lot of room. You know, right now it's still, it's not, it's not an hour yet. It's like an hour and a half and there's a lot of bits and pieces that need to kind of work together, so... So it's 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 changing. It's very fluid. But when, once it's organized, yeah, would would like the order of events over the course of the night be the same every night, or not necessarily? Not for me, no. I I, I generally leave room. You know, if I have to shoot the special, I'm usually tweaking things right up till like the day before a special. But I've gotten very kind of um, later in my life here. The last two or three specials, I've become. I was always kind of loose. Like I did a 90-minute special called Thinky Pain, which I was loose on purpose, even with notes. But then I got kind of hung up on callbacks and structure and tightening it up. So I think the last two or three specials are, are very, they're pretty, you know, pretty set. Uh, but, you know, leading up to those, you know, it's always, I, I like, the only way I I know I'm alive is when things happen that I don't plan. So, you know. Over the, over the course of looking back, how many have you done? How many specials? Well, I've done like four or five CDs, and I guess one, two, three, four, four hour plus ones. And if you looked at the uh, the roller coaster ride of how they turned out, 
was the last one the best one? The yes. ball question? Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> For sure. So you weren't in the Beatles. <laughs> I was not in the Beatles. I was never a Beatle. I was always... I was always, uh, you know, I, I I was always in a in a lot of bands that just uh, didn't quite make the break. <laughs> I was I was almost, uh, yeah, we almost had a hit, but it didn't really. I didn't really land in myself totally until the last uh, two or three. It took me, uh, you know, it took me about thirty years. You think it's is it mainly the time? Was it like just the 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 years of doing it to get to that stage? I don't know, man. It was just like, you know, you spend a lot of time as a comic, or at least I did, pretending to be fearless, you know, and that's part of the, the that's part of the thing, you know, taking the hits, uh, pretending to be fearless. And, and also, I was always a guy that I wasn't really setting out to be entertaining. I was always setting out to find some truth for myself, and, and I chose that format, right? And that was the way I always sort of did it. So I was difficult uh, to, to digest uh, throughout, uh, on and off throughout the years. You know, I was always pretty funny, but I was pretty intense and somewhat off-putting at different times. But like I was on Conan 50 times, you know, and I never really got an audience. So it took me until the podcast to get an audience. And now I can sort of deliver with a certain amount of fearlessness. And I even enjoy being up there. I don't think I enjoyed doing it until uh, six years ago. So <laughs> I don't know why I was doing it, but it was it was because I, I had to yeah. in my heart, not because I loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was what I was. It was what I was born to do. In my brain, that was like this was the only job for me. If you didn't, if you didn't love it, what what did you love? Well, I like the immediacy of being alive. And like you, know, for me, like those moments I was talking to you about, where something is delivered to me. Like you know, I don't know how my jokes are written. I don't sit there and write these equations or these math problems that are jokes that fit a rhythm. I go on stage and I put myself out there and I wait for something to be delivered to me. And that's how it happens. I don't know where they come from. I don't know why they come from, but that's what I'm gunning for. And generally, you know, it hasn't made me uh, Kevin Hart. I don't fill arenas, but I've got a pretty good size audience now that, that, that keeps me, uh, feeling like I'm doing something relevant. So, so it happens. Might something as simple as what you notice on your way to the store be the way it starts? Like, Oh, definitely. Like I did that last week about, about, you know, being on the one one and there was a Lamborghini in front of me. You know, and you know, I mean, who, who, it's not, you judge a Lamborghini and it's never in a good way. I mean, who buys that car? But the thing, the thing was, is like, I'm behind this guy, you know, and he's doing what Lamborghinis do, but he's using his blinker. And I'm like, who the fuck uses their blinker in a Lamborghini? I mean, you know, they be the douchebag. I didn't know they had yeah. blinkers. Right. You committed to being a douchebag. Do it. Be the Lamborghini, you blinker pussy. So yeah, that's the way I do it. Yeah. I bring it up there. I bring it all up there, man. Cool. Beautiful. Yeah. Anytime you want to come, let me know. Yeah, I will. Be my guest. Thank you. A pleasure speaking right. to you, sir. All right, Rick, you too. Take it easy, man. Ah. Rick Rubin, the series is McCartney 321. It's streaming on Hulu. And you really, they did a record store re-release of that uh, She's the One, that that, uh, that a Tom Petty album that was from the Wildflowers period that Rick uh, had a hand in. And God damn, it's good. And now I'm going to Try to do a rhythm I haven't done on my guitar.
Boomer lives. Monkey. The Fonda. Cat angels everywhere.